From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks right now. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. And my guest today, my very special guest, is David Smeltz. Hello, David. How are you doing today, man? Oh, doing very well, Mark. Thanks. How about you, my friend? Thank you. Thank you for being here again. I, I just want to tell our listeners that we had tried to do this episode one time before. I think you were the first podcast guest that I had. And of course, you know, absolutely not knowing what I was doing, <laughs> you know, and we did a pretty good job of it. You know, I think I said a lot of, and, you know, and, 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 and I said a lot of those, but, um, the, we were just beginning to understand the concept of communicating via this, um, this meeting we've all become used to called zoom. Right. And the audio I felt was just not up to par. So, and I, you're a very special and important guest in this series. And I just want to make sure we got this right. You know, well, thank you. So let me, let me introduce our guest a little bit to my friend, David Smeltz and David, I'm going to read some stuff over here, man. And I won't get it in chronological order, but I'm hoping I'm going to get it right. So you got to tell me if I got it wrong, man. You have implied permission to correct me. All right. Um, first off, you are a sober warrior and a badass. <laughs> I'm going to say that right now. Badass. Okay. Um, music pioneer in Northeast Ohio. Um, you launched a band called ITAL in 1978, which, um, you know, toured all through the eighties. I, re- I remember the eighties. Yeah, I think you do. <laughs> I hear stories. I hear stories about, I see pictures and stuff. I know I had, I had really big hair. Right. I know that. Right. And right. I wore a lot of belts, a lot of belts, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but on all seriousness, you know, we all went through the rat wild ride yeah. that was, uh, and eventually that ended, uh, you up, which we're going to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, your sobriety date, I believe, is April 20th, 2001. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right, cool. I got my facts right. Uh, you know, you've also uh, are an author. Uh, you've written a book, Clean, From Reggae to Recovery, which uh, was published in 2014. And you've also done two other books. Um, in uh, 2010, you started a nonprofit called The Clean House, which I definitely want to hear about that. Yep. 2018, you released a nine-song CD called Recovered, which we're going to feature some music on uh, coming up in here. Okay. And I, I just read this about you, man. You're mostly a vegan. Yeah. You lead a mostly vegan. How, how can you be mostly vegan? Now, most of the vegans uh, I know are like, man, I'm a <laughs> vegan. You know, you well, don't be I, talking to me about that. You know, so how do you, how, I mean, not to get off into the weeds already, but how do you lead a mostly vegan lifestyle? Yeah, man? well, you know? it, it, it's vegan now. When, when I... When I had written that, I wanted to allow myself some uh, some leeway for <laughs> for eating some honey from now on, you know every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, I was ve- I was vegetarian for years, uh, playing mm-hmm. in the band mm-hmm. for over mm-hmm. I don't know who knows how long, over twenty years, and wow. um, I turned vegan maybe about ten years ago. Mostly vegan includes you know I don't eat honey anymore. And I also mm. don't wear leather belts anymore. So I'm, I'm okay. vegan, vegan now. 
But if you catch okay. me with if you catch me with honey, I'll pay you five dollars not to tell anybody. You know. Oh, I promise, man. I promise, man. As long <laughs> as you're not one of those ang angry vegans that gets no, mad at me, you know, no, like, no, and they're just checking a, my a shoes, like, <laughs> man, wait, why you wear those shoes? I'm like, I'm sorry, right. I'm sorry, right. So no, hey, listen, I respect all lifestyles because yeah. that's what you know we, we're we're all, all meant to do, especially as we learned through our program. So let's jump in, brother. Tell me what David was like before David got sober. I was running on self-will, you know, mm. uh, doing what I wanted to do, whatever I thought was the right thing to do. Uh, I'm an only child, so, you know, I'm selfish and self-centered from the rip, you know. Mm. Um, mm. Once I started playing music and, and uh, realized that I, I, I didn't have to be, uh, you know, looking for your approval, you know, uh, now, I, now I was in a position to approve of you, you know. Are you are you uh, are you uh, worthy enough to come into the dressing room and party with the guys in the band? And, and what do you have in your back pocket to, you know, right. <laughs> you know, I started drinking at the age of 13. Um, I hear a lot of alcoholics say that. I guess that's the age of uh, uh, feeling uncomfortable with oneself, shall we say, mm. you know, mm. because uh, very self-conscious, you know, prior to that. And I found that alcohol helped me. Uh, give me that fake, uh, that false courage that I, that I needed uh, to talk to girls and, uh, uh, just to feel normal. I'm using air quotes, you know? Yeah. For me, it was kind of like being in a tribe. I remember I, I didn't, I didn't like drinking right away, but, and you know, that's pretty much common with my story, but I remember, you know, smoking those jazz cigarettes, left-handed cigarettes, you know, and I mean, I felt like all of a sudden I discovered a group of people that accepted me because we all got high. Right, hey, right. man, you want to get high? I'm like, yeah. wow, I can be, and I, and I, and I mean, it, I look back at it now and I joke about it now, but I, I just remember feeling like I felt a part of something. You know what I mean? There was like a, there was like a group, a club that I could be in. And that was so important to me. I think I got high the first time between the summer of eighth and ninth grade. I had to be what, 15 years old, 14, something like that. But, you know, keep going, brother. Come on, let me hear. Um, and, and that's part of it too, you know, being, being part of, you know, as I said, I never felt, I always felt self-conscious, you know, uh, I was tall for my age. I was also black for my age too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's that, uh, <laughs> there was that thing too, you know? <laughs> that's funny. Man. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still am actually. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I know. I know. It, I'm looking at you. It grows yeah. on you. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, uh, but I just felt different, man. And and what what helped me feel comfortable around people that drink, you know, I mm. I believe that uh, I'll speak for me in general, but but mu musicians, let's say creative folks, shall we mm -hmm. say, uh, are very sensitive to energies and and, and yes. uh, feelings around yes. us, you know, mm. and. Mm. What I have found out was that I had thought as as weird as I thought I was, you know, is not wanting to be around people. It was I find it was uh, more or less being uh, confined around, you know, uh, what I felt people infringing upon my space and all that. And you could be like, you know, 12 feet away and you're still infringing on my space. I just felt that energy from folks, you know, now I learn how to deal with that. You know, okay. But back then, what helped me deal with it was, you know, instant gratification, which was getting something in me 
to uh, to change how I felt. Right. I mean, well, you and I have talked about being empathic before, and and how that how that you know how being able to shake that off, and how you know sub using substances mm-hmm. when you're an empath, you know what I mean, can kind of turn the volume down a little bit. Right. I, I just felt like when I was getting high early on, like you know things just my anxiety volume just came down a little bit, and that that you know in those days that you know what I was smoking was pretty mild as far as THC content, but even so, it was it really sort of relaxed me. So I didn't see the harm, you know, and we're talking about stages of use, right? So I'm hearing you say stage one was, Hey, this is fun. I'm digging it. This is good. I like it. I like it. This helps me. So that was stage one, right? Right. You know, right. So, the drinking so, stage one. And as you said, I, you know, I had a tribe of people who liked to, we all liked to drink and, and, uh, it was very easy to acquire alcohol underage and all that. I didn't even smoke weed first. It was hash. Some guy has some blonde Lebanese. He said, Hey, have you ever smoked oh, yeah. hash? I said, no, let me try it. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And right. <laughs> you know, the combination, see, I, you know, I'm a chemist, right? I like to mix stuff that make me feel, <laughs> up chemicals. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I find if, yeah. if I get a little too high, I can find something that may lower me a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm like trying right. to balance how I feel. And to come to find out later that a, a lot of majority of people, uh, didn't have to try to balance their emotions and how they felt, you know, with chemicals. Uh, but it was a quick fix for me. So I started smoking weed. I thought I was a little hippie. Used to hang out on Coventry a little bit and uh, introduced to LSD. You know, mm. have you ever had blotter? Uh, no. What is it? Oh, it's LSD. Oh, I'll try some. And uh, orange sunshine and all that. And I was a weekend uh, tripper, you know, with my friends. We'd trip every Friday, Saturday, then during the course of the week, just drink beer or whatever, you know. Uh, This is junior high school. This is, you know, I'm 15, 15 now. So let's let's move forward to the place where you start feeling like, you know, what I call stage two, like, like, oh, what just happened, mm. right? <laughs> Consequences start showing up, right? Right. Like, where's my where's my money? Like, what what did I do last night? What what did I what did I say? You know, what did we do? What what? And you get that moment where you're thinking, what what just happened? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, drink was always there, but now I'm doing other, you know, things psychedelics and everything, uh, and and uh, weed and all that. And, and hanging out with my friends and drinking wine and, and mixing it with beer and all this. And, and they, uh, at the end of the night, I'm, I'm staggering around. And my, my friends drive me to my, my grandmother's house where I was staying at the time. And they drop me off in the bushes, you know. And I'm covered with, I'm puking and covered with uh, pine needles. And I'm staggering in the house. And my grandmother thinks I'm going to die, right? That next day I came to and I had that what happened what did I do that was embarrassing well I won't do that again but needless to say not long after that it wasn't that I learned well don't drink it was that I learned well don't mix wine and beer together moving on along there I mean I I'm getting stopped you know cops are stopping me I'm going to jail for uh you know running stop signs, uh, going to jail, you know, trees are jumping in front of my car, you know, I'm hitting those things. 
So I'm getting all these DUIs and I'm wondering what's going on here. The cops have it out for me. I went to Ohio State for a little while, got a 0.75 grade point average, left there because they didn't have the kind of classes I wanted or something, you know. Right, right. Always it's not me, else. man. It's, no, not, it's me. not me. It's not me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so the consequences are starting to show up. I'm still blaming them on other people, but I know deep down inside me that it's something to do with me. Finally, after um, starting to play in the band, I play for a while and it's enjoyable, of course, but now I'm doing a lot of cocaine to be able to, uh, to keep playing, you know, because I'm, I'm up and I'm down. I'm up and I'm down, right? Cocaine for me that really was the first time I ever felt like I'm, I'm not in charge here. I'm not in charge. I mean, smoking weed, drinking, I didn't like because I didn't like the buzz. It lasted too long and I couldn't recover from it. So weed was kind of mellow. You know, after a while you go home and you're okay. You could even do your homework. But it was when I, when I got to California and started doing cocaine that, that it was just like, man, I am not in charge here. I right. am not in charge. Right? Yeah. So, well, when I was snorting cocaine, I, I certainly felt I was in charge. When I started smoking cocaine, I knew I was not in charge. <laughs> it was, whenever I hear people talk about their experiences with, uh, right. you know, uh, drugs and alcohol, when they start talking about sm- snorting crack cocaine, I know it's going to be downhill from there. You know, right. were you were you using a lot when you were playing? Uh, you know, I was doing a lot of blow playing. It was the 80s, man. It was, it was on every corner, right? You know oh, yeah. I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously. I mean, you know, every for- gig you had somebody show up and go. Hey, man. Oh, yeah. And you'd be like, oh, oh, definitely. Oh. Well, right before that, I mean, you know, because, you know, I'm, we we're playing reggae. So a lot of the reggae community or people who listen to reggae, you know, the Rastafarian thing was smoking herb, you know, in the early 80s, 80, 81. We'd go down to Athens, Ohio, and there's nothing but growers down there, you know. So mm. guys would be coming up to the stage with big old stalks of sensimia, you know, and we're smoking oh my a lot. Goodness. Then yeah. we got introduced, you know, from some club owners to uh, to, to snorting, right? Mm. To blow. And you can tell when we started doing blow because all this all the slow songs started speeding up a little bit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, count it off, man. Right. You know? One, two, like, three, four. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and once you start, yeah. it's too... It's, I know, it's, man. It's too I know. to slow down, so... So things are starting to get pretty serious for you. You're definitely using. Were you, were you, were you a daily boy? Were you using it every day? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. You know, as you talked about drinking made, you know, slow and all that. Well, once I started doing blow, I could drink more, you know, Heineken and Cuervo all morning. I, I call that the, the, the triumvirate of terror. You know, like say, do I need a beer? Do I need a cigarette? Do I need a line? Beer? Right. Cigarette? Line? Line? No, 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 no. You need a beer. Okay, beer, beer, beer. Right. No, no. Oh, line. I need a line now. Line. Okay. No cigarette, cigarette, cigarette. Right, right. You know, and that was the night, man. You know? Yeah. And it started with that first hit. It was never as good as that first line. 
And you're chasing that all night long. Let's get that feeling back. Let's get that feeling back. You know, I don't know about you, but it wasn't about playing for me at that point in time. It was like, I don't want to play. Right. Let's, let's just get high, right. you know? Right, right, And right. talk about being great players. Yeah. Just playing, talk about it. You know? Playing is yeah. taking, is cutting into my get high time. I can't be using if I'm getting, if I'm playing. Right. What's up, you know? <laughs> yeah, so so now it's starting to get pretty serious for you. So are you, are you, are you having any circling, what I call circling down the drain moments, man? Are you having any like, okay, I'm sick. What really started to lead up to that, I, we were, we we're playing, uh, I remember we were playing in Augusta and uh, we were supposed to drive to Hilton Head the next day. I stayed in Augusta and I said, I'll meet you guys down in Hilton Head. Uh, so I just stayed at the hotel room and just party with all these people all night long. I remember this guy putting a whole bunch of, uh, I think it was speed that he put on the table. I remember eating all this speed oh my and then he said that was ecstasy i said oh okay and i said well i know i'm not going to be playing much anymore and it, it was to the point where i just i didn't want to play anymore now this is something i love doing is playing music but it got to the point i just didn't want to play anymore i need to get out of here which the hotel room i need to get out of georgia which was the state I need to get out of me. I need to go somewhere, but I'm always running from me. Took a plane, took a flight back to Cleveland. I didn't even tell the band where I was. They're waiting for me in Hilton Head, right? I got back to Cleveland with a lady friend of mine, and uh, I told her, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out, you know? Uh, I don't know what's going on. I don't like myself. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't know what to do next. That place of just not knowing, you know? They talk about the jumping off point, you know? in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, of course she gives me, you know, a couple of shots of Cuervo and said, you'll be all right. And after I had a couple of shots of Cuervo, I was okay for a second, but nothing got better. I'm not playing anymore. I'm, I got a DUI now, you know, uh, I'm staying in Cleveland. I'm not playing with the band. I'm left alone with me and I don't like me. And it seems no matter how much I get high, it's not having the same effect as it used to. Because the effect it used to, it used to do something for me. Now it's starting to do something to me. It's making my reflexes slower. I'm running more and more stop signs. I'm getting more and more DUIs now. You know, I'm in Portage County Jail. Uh, now I'm, I'm going to Cleveland Heights Jail. You know, I've got a little thing around my ankle now. And uh, it's getting worse and worse. So we're heading towards the towards the please help me moment is where I where I call it stage three when you're down on your knees, right? And you finally can say the three words that are the most powerful words in any addict or alcoholic's vocabulary. Please, period, help, period, me, right? Let's take a quick, quick, short music break because I want to I want to play some of your music, and then uh, we'll we'll have play one of your songs, and we'll come back and talk about how, you know, we made the turn. All right, so let's take a quick break. Hear another angel calling, sounds more like bawling. It cries to me. See another brother falling, back down to crawling on hands and knees. See another family's heartache. When chosen to partake in insanity See another mother's worry Her child to bury Died to be free Na-na-na-na-na-na na 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 na
What can we say about your music, brother? You know what I mean? It comes from the heart. You know what I mean? And the message is, you know, when you can always tell when the, when the music and the message is authentic. You know what I mean? Especially when you're talking to recovering artists. There's something that, that just, there's a shine around it to me that is different. You know what I mean? When you're hearing a music from somebody who went, oh, okay, there's some authenticity there. You know what I mean? Because it's hard for any of us to be original these days because we all listen to everybody. But there is authenticity I think that does come through and it comes through in your music. So tell me a little bit more about how you made the turn brother into recovery. This is where I want to hear. Making the turn in recovery. Um, I stopped drinking for about four years. This is like, because I had this woman in my life who came up from South Carolina. She was, she became, we became pregnant. We were able to get good jobs. Two daughters were born, got a big house in uh, Cleveland Heights, two car garage and a hot tub in the back. And life is beautiful. One day, my ex-wife said to me, I don't mind if you drink so much. It's just that you do, when you do drink, you just drink too much. And after four years of not drinking, that went off like a, a bell in my head. Well, I just won't drink as much. And after four years of not having anything to drink, I started drinking again. And once I had that first beer, and am still light, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Well, we always remember that relapse drink, don't we? Uh-huh. I do. Uh -huh. I do. Mike's hard lemonade for me, man. Oh, really? You know, it, can't, really? it can't get me. <laughs> it, it can't get me. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. hot out. And this will taste good. Right? And that was the beginning of the first chapter of the book of my regrets. Right there. <laughs> And I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism. I just saw people who were calling those, who said they were alcoholic and they, they were suckers. You know, they didn't know how to control their drinking. But as soon as I had that beer, all bets were off. And I'm starting to smoke crack now. A couple of temporary restraining orders and I'm in jail again. Once I get out of jail, my, my ex-wife has moved out of our home and she's taking uh, our daughters somewhere. I didn't know where they went. I had a, a bank account full of, uh, full of money that we got from the proceeds of the house that we had sold because we we're going to use it on another house. And um, I spent all of it up. I said, I will show her, right? And bought as much dope as I could. I'm driving around smoking, driving around smoking. I run, out, I run through about $15,000 just on dope and alcohol and spending on hotel rooms. And I'm parked on the side of a street in East Cleveland somewhere with this stem in my hand. And it's about three in the morning. And I'm pushing this thing back and forth, trying to get another hit out of it. And I'm telling myself, I wasn't raised like this. I knew I needed some help. So I went to uh, Kaiser. They put me in the psych ward for a little while. That's another story completely. Might be. A oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got my own 6,400 unit story. There yeah, you, you know go. <laughs> so you <laughs> no, no, I'm fine. You can let me out. Right. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. Right? <laughs> yeah. You not know? so much, man. Crazy people eating cheese sandwiches, right? Right, right. Man. And I'm man. Saying, what, what am I doing here? It's a psych ward. What and am then, I doing in a psych Yeah. And then, and then you realize I, I, belong, I belong here. here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever forget that moment yeah Never. yeah you know and that could have been a moment of clarity for me could have been you know mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. i got out of there i didn't stay clean uh i went to uh uh saint herman's to get you know eating food and 
eventually I got some information about inpatient treatment after four three dirty urines at Metro. I took this sheet to my mother's house talking about treatment and she had long ago locked the door and wouldn't let me in her house. Smart move, because I was stealing stuff from her left and right, you know? We steal things from the people we love, right? Because we know they won't hurt we're us. We're just, we're, and you know what? Here's the thing is we're always thinking in our mind because the midbrain is working and the prefrontal cortex is, is is dark at that point. We're always thinking, now, if I just do this, it'll be okay because then I'll make it right because once I just, I just need today to get my thing. And once I get my thing, I'm good. But tomorrow, tomorrow, man, I'm going to be, you know, and that's the way, and that's so difficult to explain to people because as an alcoholic and an addict recovering, I, I, I believed those things. I deeply believed that I was going to be okay. I just, today, man, I just got to get it. I just got to get that stuff. Yeah. You know, if I can just get a little bit of this time, if I can just get a car, you know, and if I could just get the girlfriend, I'll be okay. Then I'll be able to use and drink discreetly. I'll just do one line and I won't smoke crack. Because I've learned, man, I, I know how to do it now. Right. I can do it now. I don't right. need, I, I just do, I just do a little bit. Right. It'll right. be all right. Just a little bit. <laughs> or for me, it was like, you know, man, I'm just going to smoke me weed. I'm right. going to smoke some weed right. and that'll make me mellow and I'll stay home and I'll watch diners, drive-ins and dive-ins and I'll be sitting there watching, you know, pickers in my chair and it'll be okay because I can do this. I can right. do this, man. Because my I'll memory, me my memory weed. tells me, well, remember when you used to smoke weed and just drink wine? You know, and and I mean, John Bassett used to sing the song "Weed and Wine." I knew John, right? You know, so yeah, so it's okay if I just smoke weed and drink wine, I'll be okay, right? Take me forward. You get in there, right? And, you know, I don't know how many stops and starts you had, but I had some stops and starts, and those were frustrating for me. But that early sobriety, the first few miles, man, you know, I love to hear the story about the first few miles because I, I think it's really difficult to really understand how challenging it can be for an alcoholic and addict to get his brain to start working again. 104 days, I was at Orca and went straight to... Uh transitional housing at the uh, past program, Salvation Army. The one thing that I thought about most was, am I going to be able to stay sober? I knew what I kept doing over and over again prior to getting into treatment was to get high. That was my MO. That's all I did. And it's hard to tell other you know, folks who, are, who think they're not addicts or who are not addicts that you know, because there, there's talk about, well, couldn't you just stop? I mean, it's not that difficult to just stop, you know, when you're losing all this stuff. But we are mentally and physically different than those people who can do it social. Right. You and I could do a whole podcast on what it's like to talk to people about non, non-believers that do not believe that what we suffer from is a medical problem or a disease, that they just think we're just not good people. Oh yeah, most definitely. And I always wanted to believe that I was just like everybody else who was able to stop, you know, just do it socially. I found out for myself, finally, this was a turning point that I couldn't do it socially. (laughs) 
I just think you're such a badass, man, in the community. You know what I mean? You do so much to help other people, man. You know, and, and really this this podcast is really about shining the light on people that are, are out there that are making it. But one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you and talk to you now is I know that you're going through some stuff, man. And, you know, and I know that, you know, life goes on. And so tell me about where you are right now. Where are you, brother? Where are you? Talk to me. I have. Uh, I was uh, diagnosed in uh, March. Um, having cardiac amyloidosis. Um, what that is, is like a misfolding of proteins, which uh, clumps on into your heart or your uh, nerves in your hands, the different parts of your body. I have uh, congestive heart failure as a result of that. Now, mind you, being, being a, a, a partial vegan, which I'm, <laughs> I'm vegan, vegan now, you know, I thought I was pretty healthy and I was doing martial arts and all that stuff. And I am pretty healthy considered. So when I was getting shortness of breath and stuff like that, I didn't know what it was. Anyway, I was diagnosed with that. What I learned in recovery is to deal with things as they come. And they talk about living life on life's terms. You know, my expectations on, on what I think is the best thing to happen uh, always got me anxiety, frustration. When I start started to learn how to just accept things as they come and, and go through them uh, in, in unison with a power greater than myself as a support that I'm able to deal with anything that comes down the pike without picking up a drug or a drink. I really appreciate you coming on, you know, and telling us about, you know, where you are right now, man, because it takes a great deal of courage, not just to tell your stories, but to tell, you know, where you are right now where you are, you know, and, you know, you, 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 you got to remember, you got a great karma, karma balance out there, brother. You've done so much to help people. You know what I mean? And that, you know, being on this podcast, you know, and there's people out there and I've heard from people who have sent me little emails and said, you know, you may not realize it, but I was listening to that one podcast you're doing with that one guy. And he was, he was talking to me or they say that was me talking. You know what I mean? And so by sharing our stories, you know, in whatever format or, or method we do, we do, we do help people. And I think that that's for, for people that are in, in recovery like us, when we're trying to shine the light and hold the lantern, right? Isn't that the one thing? And I like to say this about, about my stories is, is, you know, I can't go back and change what I have done. You know what I mean? But I do know that, that if I get a sense that I'm doing something meaningful or or maybe doing some living amends, that big pink eraser from fourth grade comes out. You know what I mean? And I erase a little bit of that shame that I feel because I don't care what you say for us alcoholic and addicts, it never really completely goes away. It's always sitting in a, in a closet shelf, maybe up in the corner. You know what I mean? But that shame is still there. And if we can help others, that racer comes out and goes, okay, here's a little bit gone. Here's a little bit gone. You know, and that's how we do it, right? right. That's how we do yeah. it. All right, so the final question I want to ask you, my brother, is this, okay? So if you could go back in time, if there was a time travel Uber, all right. And you could call that stuff up and go back and talk to, to my man, David, when he was using and your sober self could get in that Uber and drive around the block and meet your using self. What would you say to David before he got sober? I would probably say that there's a better way and you just don't know it yet, but you'll have to learn to trust in something greater than you are to find it. Amen. 
Amen. That greater power, you know. Well, I just want to say thanks to our listeners for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks. Thank you, David. You're a badass brother, you know. (laughs) Stay tuned to Rock and Recovery for more episodes with more guests as they share their journey from the darkness to the light. And until then, stay standing, stay sober, and steady on. Thank you, brother. Take care.